Well, it's, uh, it's great to be together. We're, we're actually wrapping up today our series on the book of James. Next Sunday, hopefully you notice in the bulletin as well, we're, we're going to really center in on Thanksgiving. And we, we haven't done that a whole lot over the years, but, but uh, maybe it's just me, but I have a real thankful heart these days. And, uh, and part of that is that my daughter is sitting right over here. And part of it is just so many other blessings in my life. And, and sometimes a Thanksgiving-y worship service can feel a little civil or a little trite, but, but uh, hopefully we're doing that every Sunday and every time we gather for worship. But next Sunday, we're going to be taking special time to celebrate some of the stories of God's faithfulness and God's goodness to us throughout this year and uh, really expressing our, our gratitude to Him for that. It's also going to be a Sunday when you can bring... Excuse me, when you can bring some, some food to bring here to the altar that we'll be distributing to families that, that are in need of that, uh, anything that you'd like to bring. I mean, maybe not like fresh ground beef, but like, uh, what do you call, what do you call, non-perishable, thank you, like the non-perishable food items, maybe not like a, you know, a gallon of milk, but the non-perishable food items, bring those, and let's just plan to, as you arrive next Sunday morning, whether it's before Sunday school or before the worship service, just bring those up here to the altar and just lay them on the altar. And let's just make an offering of, of our, our, our first fruits. So I guess what I'm saying is this is not the time to scour your cupboards and look for those things that just expired or that are almost about to expire or yeah, we don't really like those anymore, so maybe somebody else will, all right? I know that's our tendency, like this is a clean out the cupboards opportunity, but, but I, I would say when you go to the grocery store this week, maybe some of the, like, the things that you enjoy the most, maybe buy two of those and bring that with you next uh, Sunday as a means of just saying thanks for all the provision that we do have and for what God's doing and as a means of providing that for someone else in need. Uh, you can also bring your, your turkeys. We'll have some coolers here to receive those, and we'll take those down to the rescue mission. And we'll also be receiving, we do this two times a year, a special offering at Thanksgiving time and Easter time, uh, an offering for world, uh, world missions and for the work of the, the church of the Nazarene around the world, missionaries who are serving faithfully in, in places like, like France. In, in fact, we have some good friends who are missionaries in France. So uh, plan to be a part of that next Sunday. But today, James chapter 5. So turn there in your Bible if you have it. It'll be on the screen as well. And I'm going to read the entire chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Let's stand together, can we? And uh, boy, Pastor Aaron and Pastor Danny have done such a tremendous job of leading us through this book of James. And we've just been on this little rotation. And what a joy to be able to share in the uh, in the preaching of this great book of, of Scripture with them. So thanks to those guys for sure. I know that you have enjoyed their efforts and uh, would encourage you to let them know that. I know that many of you do. But here we are, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. It'll be on the screen as well. As I read, at the end I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. 
This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Verse 13, are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters... If someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, the words in conclusion are those that usually everyone loves to hear in a sermon. And, uh, and they're some of our favorites. But interestingly, for those of you who may have preached before or who have spoken publicly, th- there's a bit of irony with that because of, as soon as you say the words in conclusion or something like those words, then usually the people in the listening audience fail to hear anything that is said after those words. I was in college, and uh, the, the president of the college, a guy named Jim Bond, an appropriate name to refer to, the recent uh, movie, another James Bond movie coming out. Um, Jim Bond was speaking. He was the president, great, great man, became a general superintendent of the Church of Nazarene, great, great guy, speaking to the chapel full of 2,000 college students at Point Loma on that day, and preaching just a wonderful sermon. In fact, I I think I remember it was from Colossians. It was a great sermon. And then he came to the end of his sermon and he spoke those dreaded words. I'm not sure if it was exactly now in conclusion or if it was something along those lines, but as soon as he said it, 
About 2,000 college students began to zip up their backpacks and put away their pencils, which they had been taking notes on the sermon, I'm sure, and to rustle and get to the edge of their seat so they could be ready to burst out of there at a moment's notice, as soon as he said the final amen. And after the sermon, I remember I went down to Dr. Bond. I just, you know, I just wanted to tell him, good, good sermon, man. Good job. Appreciate your work. And I, so I did, and he said, well, you know, James, I learned something today. I learned to never say in conclusion to a room full of college students. <laughs> and so I've remembered that lesson, and I've tried to apply it in just about every venue in which I speak to never say in conclusion. But alas, here we are today at the end of the book of James. And James would say to us as well as he comes to this last chapter, remember this this writing is thought by many to actually have been a sermon that James preached in his pastorate to the people at the church in Jerusalem. And here he comes to the end of his sermon and you can almost hear him saying, in conclusion. But as much as you may hear him saying that, don't start to rustle around. Don't start to zip up your backpack or put away your pencil. Let's listen in to what James has to say in conclusion to this amazing lesson, this amazing uh, sermon that he's preached, this, this letter that he's written. James has been talking to us about so many things. We've, we've, been, we've been just hearing the practical nature of this, this text enduring through difficult times, asking God for wisdom and believing that he will provide it for us. What a wonderful truth that is. He's reminded us to be quick to, what is it? Listen. I didn't want to trick you there, but it's so, our natural instinct is to say quick to speak, right? James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We've been warned against playing favorites in the church. We've been exhorted to complete our faith with action, to finalize that faith really with action. Our tongues, our words, James tells us, will perhaps be the most challenging and the first place, the first aspect in our lives that we need to submit to the Lord, and God will help us to do that. How many of you have been convicted and thinking more about the ways that you speak since we've been in this series on the book of James? If you haven't, then you haven't been listening. (laughs) Because this is one of James' core teachings throughout his book, that the way we talk, both inside and outside the community of faith, is so significant. It's so shaping and so formative. The Lord will help us. He'll, He'll lift us up, as we read last week, those who are humbled before him. I'm like a little bit like Pastor Danny, as I think he said both times he's preached in this, in this book. Much of this book is hard for me to hear. I, there's no like kind of tiptoeing around here. James is challenging us. He is confronting us. He, he is very intentionally wanting to hit us right where we live and right where we are in these days. He was a pastor. Remember this. He was a local church leader, and this is the writing of a a pastor who has been in the trenches with his people. Do you know what I mean? He's he's writing not as if he's an observer who is kind of looking at the people of God from an ivory tower or from a classroom somewhere, but but he's, he's writing as one who has been 
immersed in the rea daily realities of people who are seeking to live their lives after God's will and way for them. He knows about pain. He's heard about it. He's experienced it. He knows about temptation. He knows the reality of that. He's witnessed it in the lives of his people. He's familiar, again, with the impact that words can have in a community of faith, the, the division, the damage that can come from a loose tongue. I, I, in fact, the amount with which, uh, of which James writes about this makes me think that there was most likely some damage that had been done in his own local church in Jerusalem because of, of gossip, because of negativity, because of divisive language. He knows, because no doubt he has seen it time and time again in his people, he knows that it is one thing to say that you have faith in Jesus and another to live it out. I mean, what pastor, what parishioner doesn't know that reality? But James has seen it. You can, you can imagine him, just the names and the faces of the people in his congregation that come to his mind as he, as he writes those words, as he speaks those words. His longing for those in his congregation who have made declarations of faith, much like the longing in my own heart for so many of you who have made declarations of faith to, to see that faith be lived out in daily and very practical, meaningful ways. Again, he's not interested in ivory tower religion. He's not interested in faith that sounds good and looks good, but faith that is good, that works in the real world. And I think that's why this book continues to resonate with us today. I think that's why the book of James still kind of gets us going a little bit when we read it, when we hear it. it. It resonates because this is what we want, isn't it? This is a real faith that we want. I was thinking about this week, and who really wants to just go through life kind of going through the motions, especially when it comes to faith? I mean, if you're just going through the motions, then, you know, I can kind of think of other things you might be doing. I mean, if this, if, who, who would want to spend our life just sort of pretending to be all that God would have us to be? And, and so James speaks to us about living into this, this faith that is alive and that is practical and that is impacting every day of our lives. This is what we want. This is what we long for. Life is too short for going through the motions. So I hope we've been challenged by what James has to teach us. And I hope that our hearts have been stirred to new levels of faith. And our hands and feet, again, prompted to new levels of action. So now we come to chapter five. Chapter five. It's the last chapter. James wants to leave his parting words, his final instructions. And, and he's been so specific throughout this book. And now it feels to me, at least, that he kind of backs up a little bit. He kind of takes a little bit more of a 30,000-foot view, perhaps, and, and is not so concerned with the, with the very, very specific behaviors as he is now about all right, what kind of people are we going to be generally? What kind of characteristics are going to mark us as followers of Jesus and as the church of Jesus Christ? What characteristics ought to shape us in our individual lives and in our communities of faith? Well, I, I don't know about you, but as I began to read chapter 5, I, I was a little bit taken back. I, I mean, this sounds a little bit less like this very practical guidance and instruction, and, and more like a talk radio rant 
and rage at the beginning of this chapter. Did you catch that? Did you hear that? No doubt James has some things to say to people who have allowed their wealth to become that which drives them, that which owns them, that which is their master. And James wants to speak very clearly in this passage to those who have fallen into that place. You can, uh, you can hear, actually, the not-so-distant echoes of James's older brother, Jesus, in these words. I hope you could. And if you didn't, then let me point them out to you. <laughs> From Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, I think I have this for us. This is not James speaking. This is Jesus speaking, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth, moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will, be, will also be. Keep going. I think verse 24, is that the next one? Yeah, let's read this together. This is Jesus again. Here, read it with me. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. I mean, James isn't just, oh, I'm sorry, you cannot serve both God and money. James isn't just making this stuff up out of thin air is what I want us to get at here in chapter 5. It's not like he just kind of got to the end of his sermon and said, you know what, I'm just going to go off on people who have money here for a little while. <laughs> he's, dry, he's, he's, he's drawing this from a wealth of, of resource and a wealth of teaching. And, and not only the, the words that he heard come from his brother's lips, but from the person that he knew Jesus to be. And, and so the... the, the the strength and the force with which James speaks here is because he knows that this is an issue close to Jesus' heart. And, and the, the, the tone and the force with which he speaks is not his own invention either. His brother Jesus was known to speak quite forcefully at times. Here's some more from Matthew. This is from Matthew 23. And here's Jesus talking not to the rich people but to the religious leaders what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean. Two, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you want to read more, go to Matthew 23. I've just given you a little taste. Jesus got a little testy from time to time. And the, and the Bible doesn't shirk that reality, doesn't pull back from that reality. And, and James doesn't either. It's like, well, I heard my brother talk like this. Maybe I will too. I feel strongly and passionately about this issue. So we need to talk about this, James seems to say. We need to talk about it in a very strong way. James foregoes at the beginning of this chapter his normal, uh, 
normal intro, dear brothers and sisters, and instead goes with the rather harsh, look here, you rich people. And since he isn't writing here with any instruction, I don't know if you noticed, there's no real exhortation, there's no guidance here, it's just declaration, it's just pronouncement. And there's no real hints of redemption either. Most scholars believe that James is, is writing in this section uh, rhetorically, not really expecting an answer, rhetorically to unbelievers who would actually never read his letter. And uh, some even think that perhaps he was actually writing to the elite religious leadership who had gathered their wealth on the backs of uh, Jewish pilgrims who had brought their sacrifices. Uh, it's not completely clear exactly, but, uh, but, but, but the, the focus or the idea is that most think that he wrote with the intention really of not scolding believers here at this point, but instead of encouraging them, encouraging believers who may have been suffering economic hardship at the, at the hands of the rich. It's likely that he wanted to remind these that judgment would come soon enough to the wealthy oppressors, that they could leave that judgment to the hands of God. That wasn't something that they needed to take on themselves, and that instead they could, they could persevere in righteousness in the lives that God had called them to live. It's very likely also that at some level James wanted to warn his believing readers that uh, they, whether they were wealthy or poor, that since this judgment was coming soon, that they should beware of the perils of materialism and, and greed. No doubt there's some of that practical guidance here. But there also seems to be at least one other thing in play here that I want to bring up for us. It may or may not have been James's intention to convey this. So this is a little bit from this Pastor James as opposed from that Pastor James. But could it be that just as James had followed the example of Jesus, and actually Jesus and then James were really just following the example of Old Testament prophets before them who had spoken forcefully about issues in the world, about greed and oppression and injustice. Could it be that just as James had followed these examples, that perhaps at some level he was hoping and praying that there would be some who would read his sermon someday that would follow his example as well in, in the same way? In other words, I, I want to suggest the possibility that James writes here at the beginning of chapter 5 in such a fired-up manner. And I don't know what else you can call it. You can come up with some other description, but that's one rung with me. In such a fired-up manner in hopes that maybe, just maybe, some of his readers somewhere, someday, maybe even in Santa Barbara, California in 2015, might just get a little fired up as well about issues of economic injustice and oppression and other types of injustices in the world. One commentator writes that the church today must keep James 5, 1 through 6 at its elbow. I like that way of thinking. Keep it handy. Keep it at the ready so that we might often be reminded that we, as the people of God today, 
Hear me, friends. Stand in a long line of prophetic voices who have spoken out against evil, both individual and systemic, that results in the oppression and injustice of victims, as well as the ultimate destruction of the, of the offenders. And none of this is acceptable, and it has ever been, for God's people. The biblical prophets, remember, they were not just like psychics and fortune tellers. You know that, right? They're, they were not just there to predict the future. They were men who stood up and stood out in the world for their willingness to speak the truth of God, no matter what the personal consequences. There were people unafraid to give voice to God's will and his way in the world. And we saw a college football team just this last weekend. This last week, if you've been following the, the news, this goes even beyond the sports page. A college football team come alongside other students at the University of Missouri this last weekend to stand up to school leaders who had failed to act in dealing with racism on their college campus. And most of you know the story by now about how their, their action, their behavior of these students eventually led to the resignation of the president and even of the chancellor who's moving positions. And the hope remains that this kind of activity will, 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 will bring about not only a greater awareness of the problems that exist, but, but new ideas about how it can be tackled in that, in that situation and in that context at the University of Missouri. Now, whether you agree with their tactics or the outcome in this particular situation is not the point. The point I want to make from that story is simply this, and the point that I believe James, the biblical writer, wants to make in his rant against the rich is that there is a lot going on in this world still today that needs a prophetic voice to speak up and into it. And nothing against football players. All the football players in the room said amen. Nothing against football players, but if a bunch of football players can get this right, then what about the church? What about the church of Jesus Christ? Look here, you rich people. James says, look here, you racists, the church ought to be echoing. We're not going to stand for it any longer. Look here, you drug dealers and drug warlords, leave our children alone. Look here, you producers of pornography who are aiming at our fifth and sixth graders. It's not going to happen on our watch. Look here, you terrorists, you dictators, you sex slave traitors. You will not win in the end. You can hear the cries of those you've crushed, those you've oppressed. They've reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. And we're going to trust for the Lord to deal with all of these situations in his own wisdom and in his own time and in his own way. That's his job and not mine, not ours. We're not in the place of judgment by any means. But for now, following James's lead, we won't sit silently. And so we have to ask, this, this crazy little six verses out of James chapter 5, 
that at first blush, you just want to just pass off because this guy is obviously a little bit out of it. It forces us to ask, what will it look like for the church to stand up with James and with Jesus and with the prophets of old against the evil and injustice of our world? Well, how strange it is that James would follow up this prophetic proclamation with the instruction to be patient. What are you talking about? I mean, be outraged. That's what I expect. Be furious. Be active. This would seem more appropriate. And yet when we think about it, how fitting it is that James would call us to patience. One, one writer said it like this. James has not lost his moral perspective in the midst of his moral passion. He's keeping his head about him. For both those who have suffered perhaps at the hands of others and may be tempted to take their revenge on those who have caused that suffering or perhaps those who have begun to see what others have and envy what they have and are tempted just to give up this faith altogether so that we can lean into what the world has. James says, just hold on. Just wait a minute. Just be patient. Neither attacking the world nor giving in to the world is necessarily the right approach. Just wait on the Lord. And James returns in this section to his familiar dear brothers and sisters. Dear brothers and sisters, as you wait upon the Lord to return and settle things once and for all, be patient. Trust that the seeds God has planted will flourish in due time. What an amazing metaphor he uses there of the farmer planting and waiting. Don't get frustrated with each other and begin to grumble. That happens a lot when we have to wait, doesn't it? I'm waiting, I'm waiting. I'm kind of tired of looking at you while I'm waiting. Let's grumble. No, James says, don't grumble. Wait patiently. Know that God is at work. Know that God is moving. Know that God hasn't forgotten you. Endure as the prophets endured. Endure as Job endured. All of this is actually working together to bring you to maturity in Christ. All of this is preparing you for that final day when Christ will return. And in the midst of it, I love this little verse, chapter 5, verse 11. And I think I have just, yeah, I, I love this. At the end of this plea for the people to be patient in the midst of what they're going through, in the midst of hanging on and holding on, James says to them, remember that the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And the word that James uses there in Greek is actually a word that is used this one and only time in the entire New Testament, which is intriguing for one, this word to be used only one time throughout the New Testament. And it's a word that, that literally means he is full of compassion. He's full of compassion. He's a good, good father. We've been singing that song around our house a little bit. I don't know if you've heard it. I don't think we've sung it at our church yet, but it's, uh, it's on the radio. Maybe you've heard it. It's just called, He's a Good, Good Father. Have you heard it? This, uh, let, me, let me say these words. I won't sing it, but I'll read it. Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. You tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. I've, been, I've seen many searching for answers far and wide. 
But I know we're all searching for answers only you provide because you know just what we need before we say a word. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. That defines me. It's who I am. And, and in the midst of this this call to be a prophetic people in the midst of the world in which we live and, and then to live in patience. The only way that we can possibly do that is to know that we're held by a God and Father who is full of compassion, who is tender and merciful, who is a good, good Father. It's who he is. We face the world around us as we face those challenges before us. We know that he has our very best in mind. We can trust him. We can wait on him. We can be patient with him. When we're in a rush to see something happen, who's in a rush to see something happen? I am. When we're in a hurry to see him do his work, whether it be in our lives or in the lives of somebody else, to fix something, to get somebody, to save us, to help us, to rescue us, we can trust in his timing. That is so much better than ours. So James says as we Speak prophetically as we wait on him. He finishes with this. Let's just keep talking to him. Let's just keep talking to God. Let's just keep praying. Let's just keep that line of communication open between us and God, between God and us. Let's keep bringing ourselves before him in prayer. Have you ever stopped to think, maybe while you're praying or while you're watching somebody else pray or even thinking about praying, have you ever stopped to think about just how strange prayer must seem to somebody who just kind of doesn't get it, kind of outside looking in? I mean, it's odd behavior, you know, people get sent away for these types of things, kind of talking to yourself and and staring up into the sky. It's odd behavior if you don't understand. But, but once you make that transition of faith, once you come to know God in a personal way, then, then prayer, as many of us have discovered, prayer just becomes this, this natural, normal, beautiful means of connecting and communicating and hearing and responding to the great creator God of the universe beautiful transition that is and it seems that that's what James is talking about here it's always for James a good time to pray did you notice that um, hardships pray uh, happy praises praises in prayer sick gather the elders have them anoint you with oil and pray sin in your life Confess your sins to one another and pray, and you will be forgiven. There's life at the end of that dark tunnel. Well, it's been amazing to our family to hear from so many people who've been praying for us. And uh, I promise that at some point, the illustrations regarding the last six weeks of our life will end. But uh, for now, it's just so fresh. And so for the last... Six weeks since Katie first was diagnosed with this brain tumor and went into the hospital, and I did ask her permission to share about this. We've just been overwhelmed by the amount of people who have been praying for us and who have communicated that with us and who have 
continue to communicate with us that they are praying for us. What a blessing for all the, the Coast Community contingency to have been lifting us up in prayer and to be getting emails and notes from the Coast Community diaspora, those who have been dispersed <laughs> around the nation and around the world. I mean, we got a lot of Coast Community people out there. I don't know if you know that, but over the years we've been here, we've sent out a whole bunch and to get notes and emails and texts from these who have expressed their concern for us. Actually, the first person to pray with me about this situation was our former associate pastor, Jake Duckworth. And uh, while I was, while we were at the, the neurologist getting the diagnosis, really, he was doing a test on Katie and reading the, the uh, MRI and telling us that we were going to need to have surgery. And, and this was all just falling on us like a ton of bricks, two tons, perhaps. And we were down in the parking lot after he had just kind of said, all right, you can go, expect a call from the surgeon. Uh, and we're standing there in the parking lot wondering what is happening. And I feel my phone buzz in my pocket and I think not a good time. So we just continued to talk and pray and then it buzzed again, but it kept buzzing. So I thought this was a phone call. I better check that out. And, and it was the neurologist telling us that we need to go to the hospital that night to get checked in. And then I checked, well, who was texting me? Don't they know what's going on in my life? And it was Jake, and he was texting me just about a question. Every once in a while, he'll float me one, you know, just, I think, to make me feel good. Like, maybe I know something he doesn't, which probably isn't true. But he floated me a little question. And so I, I uh, Katie and Kyla went to Kyla's van to drive back to our house to get some things. And I went to my car, and I looked at his text, and I was like, really? You want to know that? And I thought, wait a second. Pastor Jake. So instead of texting him, I just dialed his number. And I answered his question. And then I said, Jake, I just kind of need a pastor right now. And he said, what's going on? And I told him. And I was so impressed with Pastor Jake. Somebody trained him well. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't offer me any words of consolation. He didn't try to explain anything or make it all make sense. He said, oh, James, let's pray. And really, as you, those of you who know Jake, as only he can do, I mean, he just started going and crying and praying and crying and praying. And I'm like, okay, dude, I got to (laughs) go. It was powerful. And again, I shared a few weeks ago about God's provision and God's providence to have the right people in the right place at the right time. Here's Pastor Jake there to pray with me in this very difficult time and situation. Uh, We got a message from the current president at Point Loma. I'm not name dropping. I I hang out with presidents at Point Loma. but he called, he, he sent me a message just to say, hey, I'm in Bangladesh meeting with Nazarene educational leaders from around the world, and we'll be praying for Katie specifically at our gathering this morning. And I thought about, you know, leaders from around the world that 
They don't know us. They don't know Katie. They probably, you know, they know Dr. Brower, obviously, and so that's enough for them. But, but just to join in, in prayer. I, I think about the, the um, nurses in the PICU, in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, who must have been just confused by all the <coughs> pastors that were coming to visit us. While we were in the hospital. It's a great part about being a part of a denomination, by the way. I love independent churches. I love all sorts of churches. You name it, I love them if they're lifting up Jesus. But there's something pretty cool about being connected with people that wherever you land in the world, literally, there's a, there's a brother or a sister who kind of knows you. And I, I know this is true in other denominations as well, but the Church of Nazarene is just kind of connected. In fact, I'm looking around the room right now of many who have landed here because you are part of a Nazarene congregation elsewhere and found a home here. So thankful for that. And the nurses must have been just confused, though. They must have thought we were either really, like, special or we were really in trouble because <laughs> it just kept coming. And, and one nurse after another would lean in. Yeah, there's another pastor here. Uh, yeah, there's another pastor here. And I'm thinking, yeah, hard to explain, but send them in. It was the night before uh, Katie's surgery that, that uh, Pastor Josue Tiguila, who many of us went with to Guatemala a few years ago, he's the pastor at Eagle Rock Church of the Nazarene, but was just actually this week appointed to be the pastor at Los Angeles First Church in the English congregation. He's bilingual, and he's quite a guy, and he showed up, and the nurse poked her head in and said, there's a Pastor Josh here. And I seriously, I said, there's like four Pastor Joshes on our district. And so I said, let me see. I looked out and there he was. And, and his wife, Bella, was with him. And, uh, and, and, you know, my dad was there that night and I was there. We didn't really have a shortage of pastors. <laughs> but I'm so glad that Josue... And he came into our room, into Katie's room, that <laughs> we made our room. <laughs> he came into Katie's room and, you know, he and Bella made small talk with us for a little while and just kind of warmed up. I hadn't seen Katie for a long time. And uh, got to know my parents a little bit. And then Josh just said, you know, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to pray for Katie. And... Uh, if it's okay, I, uh, I brought my anointing oil, and I'd like to anoint her and pray for her. And, uh, you know, I know James chapter 5, so I know if someone's sick, you should gather the elders, and you should anoint someone with oil, and you should pray for them. So I said, let's play. Let's get that oil going, baby. Let's pray. And so he took his oil, and, and mine is rather fragrance-free. His, his was not so much. <laughs> so for a second, Katie's nostrils were a little overwhelmed, <laughs> as was the entire room. And yet we, we, we knew in our hearts that this is right, and this is good. And Josue prayed, and he prayed fervently, and he prayed passionately, and he prayed believing in his heart. God's healing touch to be at work. And, and this is not a magic potion. Uh, 
tiny. And no prayer that we pray somehow holds God hostage to, to do what we ask him to do. God is free. Amen? Are you, aren't you glad God's free? He's above and beyond any coercion on our part. But this is what, through his word, he's instructed us to do. And so we do it. We pray. And we pray. And uh, Josh has been a great friend for a long time. And he will continue to be a great friend of mine and of Katie's, I know, in a new way. And we'll trust the Lord continue to be at work through the, the, the prayers of a righteous man. Those prayers are, are powerful and effective, James says. And so we'll keep praying. Not only for Katie, we'll keep praying for the issues that we face as a church family. We'll keep praying for the issues that we know we need to stand up against. We'll keep praying that we won't grumble against each other as we wait patiently for God to move and act in the world. And to just grab hold of James's last words there, we'll keep praying in particular for those who have been a part of the family of faith, who have wandered for one reason or another. And right now, even as I say that, there's probably not a single one of us who can't think of someone that maybe used to sit in these chairs with us or one that you've known throughout your life who has known and walked with Christ who is no longer doing so. And James says, don't give up on them. Keep reaching, keep extending, keep believing that God's grace has not forgotten them. And we'll pray to that very end. Let's stand together, can we? I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And maybe, uh, Rick, as you come, you can just play quietly as let's bow our heads, can we, for a moment. I, I just want you to think with me a little bit for a moment about how we need to pray this morning. I, I just want to ask you to think with me very clearly about where and how you're seeing injustice around the world and maybe even in your own context. And I listed a few things this morning in my sermon that I think resonate very closely with the heart of God, that come from the heart of God, that we as the people of God can't really sit silently by and allow to continue. I mean, it's not up to us. The, the end isn't up to us, but I, maybe some of us are, this morning are just hearing that invitation to stand in that long line of prophetic voices that would, that would declare very clearly that we're on the side of God. So I don't know what... We may not be able to save the world this morning, but... Where can you take a stand? Where can you speak a word? Where can you volunteer? Where can you participate? Going down and serving a few hours at the food bank, 
might be just a wonderful statement of the injustice of hunger, even right here in our own neighborhoods. There's kids who go to bed hungry every night in Goleta and Santa Barbara. And I just can't believe that that's the case, but it is. They have granola bars for dinner. I, I know these kids. Maybe it'd be volunteering to be a mentor at the rescue mission, be a spiritual mentor. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to understand addiction. You just need to love people and, and hate addiction <laughs> and want to see God's grace be at work there. I don't know, but I, I don't want another few days or months or years to pass by and to look around or have our church look around and wonder what we did. Where would God speak to you about that this morning? Who here just needs to hear the truth that the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy? Somebody here this morning maybe just needs to know that he's a good, good father. That's who he is. You're loved by him who you are. And finally, in conclusion, <laughs> who needs to pray? Who needs to pray? Are you happy? Pray. Are you hurting? Pray. Are you sick? Come on down. I've got oil. Love to anoint you. Pray for you. Is there sin in your heart? Confess that to the Lord. Find forgiveness today? Is there someone who has wandered from the faith that is one you love and one you just refuse to let go of? Pray, 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 pray. Pray. We're going to sing this song, Lord, I need you, and truly we do. I invite you to respond. If you'd like to come kneel here to pray, if you'd like to just respond to the Lord by thinking through these things. As we sing, I invite you to do that. Then I'll pray for us after we sing.